I'm here with Dale Sturm. He is a religion professor here at BYU-Idaho. He has worked here for 19 years. Um, he is from Southern California, and he also served as a mission president in the Iowa-Iowa City Mission. So first, Brother Sturm, can you tell me what brought you to BYU-Idaho? I often find most people at BYU-Idaho have some sort of a story. Most people you run into coming to Rexburg, Idaho was not their you know, primary plan. Yeah. Something happened along the way that altered their course and brought them here. I was at the Institute of Religion at the University of Utah. Um, I had just finished seven years of writing curriculum for church education. I wrote seminary movies for seven oh. years. But I wrote the ones that you liked. If you thought they were lame, somebody else wrote those. <laughs> so you did the screenplays for them? Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, on our religion faculty, there's two other faculty who we were in it together, and now we're here together. Brother Chris Allison and Brother Tom Chapman also came out of that. That was in the uh, late 90s. So I was at the Institute at the University of Utah and was pretty happy there. Uh, BYU-Idaho was not on my radar at all, but... uh, there had been some – I don't recall if it was somebody retired or there was some – because the university was growing, they were expanding the faculty a little. At any rate, they were – there was an advertisement in – among seminary and institute people that if you're interested in BYU-Idaho, here's how you would apply. I took no notice of it. But on a single day, I got phone calls from three different colleagues asking first if I'd seen it. And second, if I'd considered applying. Wow. Um, uh, and I said, yes, I'd seen it, but no, I hadn't. Well, with the first call, I said, no, I haven't really. Cons-. But by the third call, I thought, well, maybe I, I should apply. So I did uh, with no sense yet that it was what was going to happen in our lives or that I even wanted that to happen. And, uh, but we came and spent a day on campus. Um, at the time, Elder Bednar was the president of the university, and the day ended with an interview with him, pretty remarkable interaction, and uh, came away from it feeling like, I think this is where we're supposed to go next. But I didn't know that I, if I would be offered the job, you know, uh, but but we were. We were, we were invited to come here, and so in 2004, we came to BYU-Idaho. My kids were not happy about it, <laughs> but that changed pretty rapidly. They had some really good experiences, and a, and a teenage daughter who was very angry about the move <laughs> came to me. I don't know. We were maybe three months into it, and she said, this was what was supposed to happen. I'm really grateful that we came here. Wow. Yeah, so the Lord brought us here, and I find that when I talked to – uh, staff and faculty and students at BYU-Idaho, everybody's got kind of a little story. Something nudged them, something changed that put BYU-Idaho on their radar or moved it to the center of their path. It seems like if you're here, the Lord had a hand in it mm-hmm. somehow. It's a special place. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you. Um, so 
So I understand when you teach your classes, you like to meet with the students. Yeah. Tell me about that. Why so, do you do that? I came from, again, the Institute, the University of Utah, which is a giant institute. Th- think of our Hinkley building. That's It's the same design as the Hinkley building, although it's two of them, not just one, with a 10,000-square-foot atrium in between an open uh, a space. I mean, it's in inside, but it's tables and chairs and student hangout places. And so University of Utah students tended to hang out at the Institute. So you got a lot of interaction with them. I got to know them. I'd go eat my lunch where students were playing ping pong or in a study area, or I would go study and just be around students. But at BYU-Idaho, the Taylor Building doesn't serve that function. That Mm -hmm. happens elsewhere on campus. They don't come to the Taylor Building to hang out. Some are there studying, but they don't want to talk. They're there to study. Mm -hmm. So I I noted almost immediately that I was missing some interaction with students that I had at the Institute. So the, the only thing I could come up with was I'll give you some points and some crackers. So I keep boxes of Cheez-Its in the office. If you'll just come and let me get to know you a little bit. Now, I, there's nothing scientific about this. There's no uh, social science that I'm aware of that, at least for me, that inspires it. It was really just an honest desire to get to know my students a little bit better. And, um, and so they come and we spend five or ten minutes and it's really just – there's no agenda other than where you're from and what do you love and tell me a little about yourself and, and we eat some Cheez-Its together. But what happens is I can tell. I can walk into a class on a certain day halfway through the semester when I've reached a critical mass. That is a certain percentage of them have been in my office and they're no longer just uh, experiencing me and the course during the hour of class time, that we have some little connection in addition to the class. And when that critical mass is reached, there's a definite shift Mm -hmm. in the uh, rapport and their willingness to share and talk. And uh, they think my jokes are funnier once (laughs) we've had that interaction. It's palpable. It's, It's really sort of interesting that um, any awkwardness maybe that you sometimes experience in teacher-student interactions kind of melts away. and So it's really important to me. It takes a, a lot of time, mm-hmm. but it's uh, valuable to me. I, 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 many other faculty do very similar things and probably better than I do, but that's it's been significant to me. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's important, you know, have that rapport with students. Um, how How do you help students – as a religion professor, when they deal with faith struggles? Yeah. Um, I think there's probably a couple of standard operating procedures for me when somebody expresses that they're working through some stuff. And First of all is to help them understand that that's actually pretty normal and probably even intended that uh, faith is uh, formed as we are challenged a little bit, that we're supposed to bump up against things that we're not quite sure if we can handle or can we do this? Can I move forward when I don't quite understand this? I think that's intentional and it presents every one of us an opportunity to uh, become a disciple rather than a skeptic, to choose. Am I going to follow? Am I going to choose Christ even when the answers aren't clear to me? 
or am I going to make myself the most important thing? You, the, the answer has to satisfy me. It has to meet my conditions. So first of all, it's very normal. And uh, everyone, I think, goes through it at some level. And, and then secondly, I try really hard to turn them to sources that are faith-filled. Again, that sometimes is going to test them because sometimes they want responses from external sources. They they want people who uh, uh, have some opposition towards the church to give them the answers. And I don't think that's particularly wise. The Faith requires that we, well, President Packer used to say, take a step into the darkness only to discover that the way is lit for another step or two. But you don't make that discovery mm-hmm. until you take the step into the darkness. So I try to help them uh, move towards sources in their investigation that are faith-filled. These days, and this is a relatively new challenge because of social media and the internet, and it's very easy to sort of get caught in an echo chamber where what you're hearing is just uh, doubters and complainers talking at length about their doubts and complaints rather than people who are trying to work it out, who are who are saying, I, I want to move forward in Christ and I want to follow the prophet. Here I'm stubbing my toe a little bit. How, how do I move forward? So uh, pretty much that simple, I think, that this is normal. Heavenly Father um, expects this, and in fact, it's probably kind of on purpose. And I think you can work it out in scriptures and words of the prophets and with the trusted counselors who are faithful. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I, I'm also, just to kind of switch gears a bit, I would love to hear about your service as a mission president. Can you just share a bit about sure. your experience with yeah. that? We served in the Iowa-Iowa City Mission, which <laughs> most people have no idea where that is. Uh, in fact, we'd tell people we've been called to Iowa, and in the in that very conversation, they'd start to refer to it as Ohio. <laughs> uh, if we weren't in Idaho, they'd often think we were called to Idaho. Oh, Idaho, funny. Iowa, and Iowa, Idaho, and Ohio are often confused. <laughs> in fact, it's a joke in Iowa that... <laughs> People think they're in Ohio. Wow. Uh, but our mission, uh, and we would say this to the missionaries, nobody on the day they opened their mission call, nobody had their family gathered around them with their fingers crossed saying, oh, I hope it's Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was only because they didn't know. They didn't know what this place was. The Iowa City Mission used to be called the Des Moines Mission. Um, it's the same boundaries, but uh, now the headquarters moved to Iowa City and renamed Iowa City. It has Nauvoo in it. It has Carthage in it. Joseph Smith's and Emma and Hiram are buried in the Iowa City Mission. Um, you can, as a missionary, stand at the grave of the prophet. The first step, I always tell the missionaries, is the first steps that the resurrected Joseph Smith will take will be inside the boundaries of the Iowa City Mission. True. We also had uh, the handcart park. Uh, the handcarts all started in Iowa City. So uh, many of our missionaries would have participated in uh, youth conference treks, you know, trek-style youth conferences. But in Iowa City, you're walking on the ground of the actual trek. This is where they crossed Iowa, and it started in Iowa City. So that was the place. We served during COVID. So the first eight or nine months was pre-COVID. We started in July of 2019. 
by April of 2020, COVID was in full swing. Um, missionaries in uh, foreign missions were being brought home and um, many reassigned to North American missions. So the mission started to swell. We started to get about every two weeks, we would get an in, a new intake of 10 to 15 missionaries. So our wow. our complement uh, swelled about 35% beyond its maximum. Um, got wow. up to about 250 missionaries when we were used to about 186. So that was we had to create 30 new areas and find places to house them. And this is a story that many missionaries today could tell you, that they, that they went to Arizona or Washington or Texas or Georgia or when they'd actually been called to the Philippines or to Rome or to Uruguay or, you know, and that they went into the mission field at a time when uh, they didn't have apartments for them. We had missionaries in hotel rooms. We had some rental cars for a while. And remember, at first, everybody thought COVID was going to be just like that summer. We're going to yeah. get through this summer. And, uh, but it, as you know, it went on and on. But the more remarkable, and all of those were just little um, logistical issues that had to be worked out, and that was happening everywhere. The real miracles were we'd always done missionary work in a certain way. Right. Even though I think the brethren and preach my gospel. And the Holy Ghost had, for many years, been telling us, you know, there's actually some better. We we got we got to work better with members. That's really the way we we got to do it. Instead of just knocking on doors or stopping people in parks. And, mm-hmm. um, although we'll always probably do a little of that. COVID made us find new ways because you couldn't knock on anybody's door. And so, social media became uh, essential to our work. The Brethren had, prior to COVID, made a move to start to have missionaries utilizing smartphones at a time when I think a lot of people thought, well, this is a strange thing. Smartphones are way more trouble than they're worth. Mm-hmm. The many difficulties surrounding you know, what's available uh, on a smartphone was many people thought, oh, this is an odd choice. But it's just one more moment where the brethren were ahead of the curve. That So when this happens, they can't go knocking on doors, but every missionary's got a smartphone, every North American missionary has a smartphone in their hand, and we immediately started figuring out how to do it. And the missionaries who were serving at that time, they're pioneers. Um, perhaps a little disappointed that they didn't finish or even get to go to Japan or Peru. or, But in the end, they were the Lord's pioneers in figuring out how to do this. And by the time we were well into it, we were actually baptizing, bringing more people into the church than we were pre-COVID. In our mission, it it doubled. Um, Not right at first. At first, it was really challenging. But after a while, uh, the Lord blessed our missionaries. They did remarkable, miraculous things. Yeah, that's really cool. I also was a missionary when COVID hit. Um, It was towards the end of my mission. I think I was out about 15 months. Where were you? Um, Oklahoma. So okay. I stayed put, you know. <laughs> but you saw that influx. You saw missionaries oh, totally. coming who had already served in Chile, and then you had other missionaries who were called to go to France, but they actually came to Oklahoma instead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was crazy. I mean, at a point, I, I felt like I didn't know anyone in the mission anymore. You know, yeah. there's so many new people. And, and yeah, I, you know, I 
I went home pretty early into COVID, so I don't feel like I really got to see that big increase in baptisms. But how did that come about for you guys? Was a lot of it from social media or just with members? Do you know? Yes, we know. <laughs> um, social media was very, very important. But the primary thing that made the difference was um, members grasping that they can't, the missionaries can't find unless we're mm-hmm. engaging with them. And uh, at least in Iowa, uh, again, North America Central area, so an area presidency that were had a, tre- a tremendous vision and a great relationship with the Area 70 and the stake presidents. And in our mission, um, eight stake presidents who understood it and really tried to lift the members to – this is more than just praying for the missionaries or just feeding the missionaries. Now we've got to – be part of the work. We have to do this as a team. That um, So our missionaries were meeting with multiple uh, sets of members every night and then frequently, like once a week, with the same members, a little short, little five to ten minute meetings with the members to give them ideas and help them start to find ways to use social media and other things to share the gospel, help families create their own little family mission plan and utilize the missionaries as motivators and experts and problem solvers and cheerleaders as they did the work. And the members stepped up. It was remarkable thing to see. That is really cool. I love that. I think that's how it should be. (laughs) Um, That's cool. So I'm I'm also intrigued to hear how your service as a mission president impacted your faith. <laughs> so it was a very challenging season. You served, you know, that uh, <laughs> there was a lot of stress and some anxiety connected with this whole thing. And, of course, the whole world was feeling that tension and stress. But one thing I noted was uh, the prophets, the First Presidency and the Twelve, the leaders of the church— all we ever felt from them was confidence and peace. The Lord knows what he's doing. We're going to be just fine. Uh, we're not sure right now what the next step, at least in missionary work, is, but we're going to think about it. We're going to try some things, and we're going to identify, and they did, and and we're now we're going to work at it. We're going to get better at it. And so there was, I guess, confidence in a challenging moment where the world is freaking out a little bit. The Lord's prophets were just beacons of confidence and faith and and then uh maybe the lesson that uh that i hope all of our missionaries learned and that that uh, my wife and I, my wife valerie learned was that god knows what he's doing this thing was a big surprise to us it wasn't a surprise to him he had put things in place that made it possible and he was moving his purposes forward even in a moment where we were really uncomfortable and feeling uh like we don't know what to do we've we've been cut from our moorings and everything we knew how to do is no longer available to us and he knew exactly what he was doing and thing, things were in place to move his work forward that the the works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither do they come to naught, DNC section 3. Uh, that's one of the great messages that even when it looks like it's a world gone mad, uh, actually God knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and just knowing that, yeah, even though things are crazy, 
because we have a savior, it will all be okay. Yeah. I also think, this is just me, so what do you think? I think the missionaries who served during that season, you and others who came after you, and maybe even still a little bit now, I'm curious to see what's in store 20 years from now mm-hmm. when you and those other missionaries are now the leaders in the church, when you're the the bishops and the Relief Society presidents and the stake presidents and the uh, general officers of the church, when this group of missionaries is in their 50s and 60s. And what was the Lord preparing them for this, uh, this season where they learned that you can do really hard things. You can you can enter into a something when you think it's going to be one way, and it turns out it's completely different, and you figure it out because the Lord helped you. Those lessons. What is what is He preparing this generation for? It's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah, you're right. Definitely, that's interesting to think about. What advice do you have for people who want to go on a mission? How should they prepare for that? First of all, decide you're going to go. Young men need to follow the call of a prophet. Any sense that that has uh, diminished, certainly that's not what we're hearing from President Nelson, that uh, young men are called to go. There's many ways to serve as full-time missionaries now, more than there's ever been. Anyone who thinks, well, I'm not sure it's for me. Um, maybe that's a natural way for some to think, but get over it. And Because uh, you're right, it's not for you, it's for Christ. So let's do this for Christ. Um, in in some way, there's going to be a way that, that they can serve. And for sisters, it's a free will offering. But um, you've experienced it. Every mission leader I know has experienced it. Sisters are spectacular. They're necessary to the work. But not every sister needs to go and serve a full-time mission. But if that, even the tiniest whisper is there in your heart, pursue it. See what the Lord says about it. So first thing to do to prepare is decide you're just going to do it, even if it doesn't sound like it's that fun to you. By the way, it is remarkably fun, but it's also pretty hard, as True. as you know. Yeah. It's pretty hard. There's going to be really hard days. People who tell wonderful stories about their mission, um, they, even the most excited, you know, they got maybe 15 or 20 really great stories, but they were there for 750 days, <laughs> and, and they got 20 great stories. <laughs> so there were some days that were just hard. Uh but they wouldn't have got to those remarkable, those 20 amazing, life-changing moments if they hadn't been there the other 730 days, right? Uh, so decide you're going to do it. And then determine that you're going you're gonna to grow in faith. You're not going to grow your skepticism. You're going to grow your faith. And faith requires action. So there's things you got to do. Strive. you got to try. Um, uh, this will sound very um, uh, basic, but... Uh, Attend church, say yes to callings, develop a scripture study habit, um, do your ministering, pay your tithing. All of those little things are going to build your faith and give you confidence uh, that that the Lord's with you and going to help you. I think that's how we prepare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Yeah, you know, you're talking about how it's fun and it's hard and and it's true. It it was super hard, but it was honestly like the best time of my life. Like I yeah. miss it still even yeah. now. So I love that. So coming back to BYU Idaho after serving as a mission president, how did how did that influence your teaching? So num- maybe the first thing uh, was that when I left, it was pre-COVID. <laughs> 
I came back to a post-COVID university full of post-COVID students, and some things had changed. Some student um, expectations, the way students thought about the university and their classroom experience had changed. Also, some mental health uh, issues that maybe they were there all along and COVID uh, revealed them to us, but they were certainly more recognized uh, now in a post-COVID world. And so helping students who have a desire to be successful at the university but are struggling with some things, that that was kind of new. But the mission helped me with that, certainly, because one of the things mission presidents do that I don't know that gets talked about much is just a whole lot of working with mental health issues and trying to help young people whose desires are strong, but uh, the challenges of the mission bring out some of those mental health issues. And so there was that, but also the sense that the mission uh, reminded me of and built in me that God knows exactly what he's doing. So, Things that may appear to be challenges are really just God doing his work. And I think that's part of my teaching. I think it comes up a lot now, as well as maybe having had many opportunities to interact with our friends of other faiths. That has an effect now maybe on the way that I uh, teach the gospel to students, uh, the, the, the questions that I put to them and ask them to wrestle with might have – they're now – definitely influenced by my knowledge that they will interact with people of other faiths, and we want to do that well um, to lift them and help them, and we want to get better at it. That's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, kind of a list of things. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Great. Well, my last question is, how has your experience at BYU-Idaho helped you draw closer to Christ? BYU-Idaho is a remarkable place. Um, The level of privilege that we live with here, where we have uh, apostles and prophets routinely showing up on campus and speaking to us in person, it's astounding. Um, Most students who just are here for a a few years, then they're going to go off into the world, and there will likely not be another season in their life where over the course of uh, three or six months, they'll interact with two, three, four members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles or other general authorities or general officers of the church. That that God's eye is on BYU-Idaho and his attention is clearly here and his messengers come here in person. That, that's just remarkable. And so, yeah, it kind of feels like an advantage, like an unfair advantage sometimes that that we're just in the midst of it, in the shadow of a temple, soon to be in the shadow between two temples yeah. <laughs> um, with that, you know. And, and then, of course, the mission of BYU-Idaho, that uh, we're about faith formation. We're about preparing students to be uh, productive and successful in all of their careers, but to do it as disciples of Jesus Christ, that, that this is intentional. It's deliberate. It's not uh, on the periphery of what we do. It's not something we just try to slip into their back pocket. It is in the forefront of why we're here. And that's remarkable. So, I, of course, I start every class with a prayer, but I'm a religion teacher. Uh, it builds my faith to know that the biology teacher starting his class with a prayer. And 
they're they're praying in an English literature class that our nursing students are not just desperately praying for their own survival <laughs> in the program, but in their instructional experiences that that Jesus Christ is invited to participate in everything we do. It's just remarkable. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.